0: Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, for the Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Frum for another episode of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as viewers and listeners know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. Today's episode is being recorded a day after the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, arrived for an official visit in Ottawa and less than two weeks before the upcoming midterm elections in the United States. I thought it was a good time to talk about the Canada-U.S. relationship in an era of ongoing political acrimony in Washington. David, thanks for joining us once again.
2: Always good to be with you. Thank you.
1: As you know, Canadians overwhelmingly favored Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. One poll at the time, for instance, found that 84% of Canadians said they'd vote for Biden if they could. Yet, one can argue that his administration hasn't been great for Canada. It may be less crude and unpredictable than the Trump administration, but on a series of files, including the Keystone Pipeline, Buy America, and our exclusion from the US-UK-Australia Australia Naval Agreement it feels like Canada is at best an afterthought these days. It's notable, for instance, that Canada is the last U7 country that the Secretary of State has visited. I mean, let's start big picture. What do you make of the state of the bilateral relationship under the Biden administration?
2: Well, it has to be stressed at the beginning that the Canada-U.S. relationship always moves within a band from excellent to very good. And the can, it's so complex that it is almost beyond the mind of a human being even to comprehend it. It includes not just the things you mentioned, but migratory birds, traffic congestion on the Ambassador Bridge, acid rain issues. I mean, just for electrical wiring, I mean, just millions of issues um, being worked on every day by people who have no conception that they're working on the U.S.-Canada relationship. They just think they're protecting the migratory birds and the monarch butterflies, and they are talking to their counterparts in an American state a thousand miles away. I think that part shows some light into the point about Blinken not visiting Canada or visiting Canada last. Um, that's not a slight. That's about proximity. That I mean, actually making a trip for an American Secretary of State to book a trip to Ottawa when they're in this, when o- Ottawa and Washington are in the same time zone, when Canadians are constantly in the United States, and when in fact so much of the U.S.-Canada relationship does not go through. The foreign policy apparatus, it's, it's not a slight, it's just a, a nature of the, rea- of, I don't know how often the trade counterparts have met, but I would bet often because they have those issues. All of that said, Canada does have some things to worry about with the Biden administration, uh, it, as we discussed on this platform before the area of greatest continuity between Biden and Trump has been the Biden administration's suspicion of trade expansion. They have maintained many Trump trade protectionist policies. They have made zero commitment to trade expansion. They're just not interested in it. And with control of Congress once again coming down to the former industrial areas in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan, there's not a lot of hope for near-term improvement. So that's going to be um, a, a real point of vexation, and. Canadians understandably prefer working with a less aggressive and belligerent and narrowly nationalistic administration. But those trade issues remain tender, even with the Biden administration.
1: We'll come to the midterm elections and their potential implications for the bilateral relationship later in the conversation. But it it sounds like the big news coming out of the the Secretary's two-day visit is that Canada is joining the Indo-Pacific economic framework which was created by the Biden administration and currently involves 13 other countries as something of a regional counterweight to Chinese influence. It seems to me, David, it raises bigger questions about our bilateral relationship with China. It's notable, for instance, that Canada's industry minister recently spoke for the first time about the need for decoupling. I guess the question for you is, is a hawkishness vis-a-vis China on the part of Canada now the cost of doing business in Washington. Is it your sense that the administration thinks that Canada has been too weak on China?
2: Yeah. Um, Well, Canada was the the target of a very specific targeted Chinese blackmail attempt involving the safety of Canadian citizens. So that was a a, a sensitive point. Canada has always approached China with trade concerns first, migration and voting concerns second and security concerns a very distant third, if at all. And we saw that at the beginning of COVID, where the Canadian government really seemed motivated above all by fears of how acknowledging the risks of COVID would affect their voting position in Chinese Canadian communities rather than protecting the health and safety of Canadians. So that's been a problem, especially with this government. But all this highlights the, the lopsidedness of Canada's state existence and the choices that Canadians have to make. In the realms of finance and economics, Canada is a major player. It is, you know, it is it is a G seven country. It's not quite in the Britain Japan level, but it's the next. tier. if the United States and the EU are level one, and Britain and Japan are the next level, Canada is is you know there with with France and with um, with Italy as a as an equivalent economic and financial power. But in every security dimension. Canada has elected to reduce its capacities to those of a very small country. Canada suddenly looks much less like a France or a Germany, and much more like, uh, well, like a much smaller like a Portugal. And that's the decision that Canadian governments have made, driven primarily for budgetary reasons. We've talked about this before. Given also because Canadian career paths in the civil service do not reward those who want to work in security portfolios, and. So Canada finds itself in a position where it wasn't, Canada's not slighted by not being invited to join the naval exercises. The question is, what would Canada, what assets would Canada bring? So if Canadians want to have more of a say in that spectrum of issues, along with the financial and economic, where they do have a lot of say, then they have to build those capacities, which means having world class security services, world class counterintelligence services, means not sacrificing domestic security to Ethnic vote seeking, whether it's China, whether it's Iran, whether it's Hezbollah, and that's been a that's been a constant problem for Canadian government. Conservative governments have had their own sins with with Sikh communities and, and others. But because Canada is such a diverse immigrant country, because immigrant groups bring in all kinds of people, both the best and the worst, and because the worst sometimes are more organized than the best. Canadian governments have tended to make security secondary to vote-seeking. And if you want to be a player in the air in security, that has to change.
1: And one of Secretary Blinken's visits well in Canada is to a manufacturing plant in order to highlight the concept of so-called friendshoring. shoring David, what do you think of this idea? Does it have potential? And how far should the Canadian U.S. governments go to bring back production to North America?
2: I have to, I'm in one way, I am, I'm the last of the free traders in Washington. I think we, I, I think we should be looking to buy the best product at the lowest price anywhere in the world. And there are cases where national security must Trump override, um, Free trade, economic efficiency concerns. But you need to be very careful, and especially when dealing with the Biden administration, whether you're dealing with a real security issue or whether you're just dealing with just a fancier excuse for protectionism. The Biden administration has strong protectionist tendencies. And so I would hope that for Allied governments, including Canada, would say, where you know, what would Mackenzie King say about conscription? Conscription if necessary, not necessarily conscription. A friendshoring, shoring if necessary. But let's be sure it's necessary and that it's not a disguise for protectionism. And let's also not be the people. I, I, I think the China relationship is one where it would, where it would be wise not to be proactive we should always be seeking the warmest possible relationship that China will allow. And we should never, ever, ever lose our hope that that relationship is going somewhere good and not accept that it is doomed to go somewhere bad. A lot of the things that people say falsely about the West and Russia are, I fear in danger of becoming true of the West and China. We are in an escalatory cycle where we each feeding each other's paranoia. And there is still lots of room. I believe, uh, there's lots of room to try softer measures designed to get more cooperative results, and and to continue to keep alive the hope that can't China can be a responsible member of a world trading community. It's not a democracy. It's not a respecter of rights. There's a lot of there's, there's a lot to say about the terrible abuses happening to individuals within China, but in the economic realm, I I, I think we want to be. Absolutely sure that China itself has left us no choice but state led management of trade because that should not be our decision. That has to be their decision.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest every saturday morning we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of the hub again you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now free of charge at www.thehub.ca now back to our program
1: I would just say in parentheses parentheses for viewers and listeners, it is a big deal that Canada's industry minister has uh, talked about decoupling in the past couple of weeks. That strikes me as a a major development that one couldn't have anticipated, especially coming out of the Trio government, who, as you say, David, has been slower than others to start to think and talk differently about the country's relationship with China
2: this decoupling may happen anyway, because there it looks like there is some serious crisis brewing within the, the Chinese economy. And we, people have been predicting this now for a decade, that the, the, the crazy way they finance growth with debt from trapped savings. And people have been saying for a long time, this can't go on forever. And. And it it wasn't true for a long time that, I mean, the consequences didn't come, but it is true it can't go on forever. And sooner or later, it will stop. And maybe this is the year that it is stopping. So we may have a forced decoupling. Plus, China seems to be taking this extreme approach to COVID suppression that
1: is, again, um, waging ruin upon its own internal economy. Let's turn the conversation now to the midterm elections. We spoke soon after the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade. And you astutely predicted that it would give the Democrats a shot in the arm. You were right. Congressional races tightened. Though, in, in recent days, the Republicans seem to be opening up something of a lead. Where do you think things stand? Help us understand the overall state of the elections.
2: Yeah. I, I think the abortion was very important in the summer. What has become very important in the fall is just what has happened to the price of the average mortgage. If you are looking to buy a new home, and you are putting 20% down and financing 80%, your purchasing power has been effectively cut in half by, by interest rates. And that's not a problem just for new buyers. Because the peak of the U.S. real estate cycle pre-COVID was the year 2017. And the cheapest kind of mortgage you could get in 2017 was a five-year mortgage that had a fixed rate, that it had, was a mortgage that had a fixed rate for five years and then reset. And guess where what year all those 2017 mortgages are resetting right now? So there are a lot of people who own a home, and not just young new buyers who are being priced out of the new market, but a lot of people who own a home thought they could afford it and are suddenly discovering they are struggling to keep up with the new mortgage. And they, they're they agitated about that, un- understandably. So that's going to be powerful. And so I think there is a sense that a lot of races have broken. I think we've also seen um, some personal factors. I mean, there, there's this extraordinary race in Georgia, where a famous football star, Herschel Walker, is now very credibly shown to have finance, not one, but two abortions, one of which he sort of bullied, at least one of which he bullied the woman into. And pro-life voters in a pro-life state say, well, we didn't mean him. We didn't mean we meant a bad people's abortions. We didn't want we, not good people's abortions. We don't want to stop those. So we're on our way very likely. We've always been on our way to a Republican House of Representatives. It now looks more likely it'll be a Republican Senate, too.
1: Let me take up that precise topic. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has lamented both publicly and privately, according to reports about the quality of some Republican Senate candidates, including Herschel Walker, who you mentioned, and Blake Masters in Arizona. Amongst others, you want to help us understand the dynamics that produce these candidates. It, it, I can't help but feel, David, uh, like it uh, like we're back in 2010, and Republicans seem determined to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory.
2: Well, this is not a uniquely Republican problem. Look at the race in in, in Pennsylvania. Actually, we're both can't both parties. The Republicans had the choice of a Pennsylvania native successful businessman, active in state charities. They could have had him. And instead they got Dr. Oz who peddled quack medicines on television. And the Democrats had a, a candidate named Connor Lamb, who was a, a, uh, veteran, uh, I think a U.S. Navy veteran, served in Iraq with distinction, was a member of the Judge Advocate Corps that prosecuted cases and military justice and, you know, physically fit and ready to a member now of the U.S. House of Representatives. And they chose instead a man with the health conditions that, you know, n- and never mind, you know, that he was a Bernie Sanders supporter and all had all kinds of weird views, that he was a, a health vulnerable person. And so both parties made bad decisions in that state. So part of it is a problem with party bases. And You know, there's this this question about how parties choose their candidates. So the Republicans do seem to have it worse, but Herschel with in the the single worst candidate they have, which is Herschel Walker, they may be about to get away with it.
1: If we end up with divided government, what will be the consequences for the policy agenda in Washington? Are there areas where there may be scope for bipartisanship, like we saw, for instance, with the CHIPS Act, or are we headed towards the kind of dysfunction that we've seen? in previous cycles of uh, in, in which Congress and the White House find themselves on, on opposite sides?
2: Well, the scariest possibility ahead, and it's ahead very fast, is that Congress may reenact the debt ceiling showdowns of 2011. Now, these are games, I forget now which movie, is it Grease, where they have the, the game of chicken on the highway, that the, these are games where no one actually intends to have a car crash. Both hope that through projecting commitment they can force the other car to swerve before there's a disaster but there are also terrible problems of communicating and signaling where a mistake can happen and if if you do have a a mistake you get a situation where the united states government defaults on obligations and not just debts but contracts all kinds of the the united states government is the largest buyer of goods and services in the world and if it turns out to be and it, it operates on a series of i mean if you've ever sold to the u.s government it's quite hard to become a to to go through the paperwork to get the first payment but once you get it they pay very regularly once you get the system going it's very regular so you have have suppliers all over the earth and especially inside north america who are expecting regular payment of their bills by the united States government never mind pensioners and 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 people like that if we you get a, a default on those obligations now, whether it's the debt or the contracts, it could be a global financial catastrophe. And that could happen through misunderstanding. It could also happen because while Mitch McConnell in the Senate has a strong grip on his caucus, Kevin McCarthy in the House will be one of the weakest speakers seen in years, if not the weakest speaker of all time. And he has great difficulty controlling his caucus. You see this also in Ukraine policy. McConnell has made very clear he's a friend of Ukraine. He's on Ukraine's side. He personally went to Sweden and Finland to assure those governments that their application to join NATO would pass through the U.S. Senate without difficulty, and it, it proceeded exactly as he said. He's been uh, and he's he's got the votes, and he's there's never been a question about them. McCarthy has waffled. I think in his heart, McCarthy is on the Ukraine side. He was photographed just yesterday wearing a pocket handkerchief in the colors of Ukraine, but. He's afraid of his caucus and he can't control them. And many of them are on the Russian side. And that's going to be a real issue, too.
1: In the political environment you just described, what should the Canadian government be doing to advance the country's bilateral priorities? What, if anything, can we do, David, to cultivate allies and attention in Washington? Yeah, well,
2: Canada has a very able ambassador right now but the key thing to bear in mind is the thing i said at the beginning the relationship does not flow through the formal channels of diplomacy alone every canadian premier who has contacts with adjacent state governors is doing canada us relationships every environmental agency i mean every uh, every business so it is it's more like domestic politics, really, than it is like international politics. And so, and I think many premiers have been very effective with this, but they need to be reminding their American counterparts that Canadian suppliers also have interests in being paid on time and in there not being any kind of unnecessary artificially artificially forced default. That So keeping those lines of communications open in many places beyond the embassy is going to be very important. The, the ambassador will have to, will work with Republicans in the Senate very successfully, and I think Indians like the rest of the world are just going to be in a position of hoping that Kevin McCarthy is not as weak and feckless as he looks. That, that that the worm does maybe have a spine somewhere inside its slithering body, and and that he will be able to prevent the wild people in his caucus from doing all the damage that they're coming to Washington in order to do.
1: Let me just wrap up with one final question. We we aren't to have a, a federal election in Canada. Until 2025, is there anything occurring within the context of these midterm elections that Canadian politicians ought to take note of? Any issues or strategies or tactics that may inform a federal election? You know, still two or three years out. Yeah. Well, I
2: th- I think the the lesson is a, a, an important lesson is. From Canada, from Australia before that, from every development is the, the overwhelming power of the inflation issue. Um, that this is not my point originally, but it's true. You have serious unemployment, seven, eight, 10 percent. But most people keep their jobs. You have seven, eight, 10 percent inflation, and in everybody feels it. And they feel it not just at the supermarket, where they can maybe make their peace with it, but they feel it in financing the houses over their heads, where they really can't. And and uh, so that's, you see the power of that issue. But Canadian politicians on a different timeline also need to just ask themselves, is inflation going to be as bad two years from now as today? And I, of course, do not know the answer to that question, but it is looking like the interest rate rises and the other measures are having some bite. And if that's true, the the main lesson I impart to all opposition parties in all Westminster countries is the one we talked about recently, which is do not make plans too far in advance. You do not know. It is impossible to know the issue map two years out. So the important thing is to focus on fundraising and candidate recruitment and internal, internal development and not to commit too hard to any line of attack on the government of the day
1: a lot of insight there as there's been throughout this conversation. David, it's great to catch up and I look forward to speaking to you again in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Me too. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.